Chapter Six of the Ivory Child by H. Rider Haggard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six, The Bonafide Gold Mine. Fully two years had gone by since I bade farewell to Lord Ragnall and Miss Holmes, and when the curtain draws up again, behold me seated on the step of my little house at Durban, plunged in reflection and very sad indeed. Why I was sad, I will explain presently. In that interval of time I had heard once or twice about Lord Ragnall. Thus I received from Scroop a letter telling of his lordship's marriage with Miss Holmes, which, it appeared, had been a very fine affair indeed, quite one of the events of the London season. Two royalties attended the ceremony, a duke was the best man, and the presents, according to all accounts, were superb and of great value, including a priceless pearl necklace given by the bridegroom to the bride. A cutting from a society paper which Scroop enclosed dwelt at length upon the splendid appearance of the bridegroom and the sweet loveliness of the bride. Also it described her dress in language which was Greek to me. One sentence, however, interested me intensely. It ran, The bride occasioned some comment by wearing only one ornament, although the Ragnall family diamonds, which have not seen the light for many years, are known to be some of the finest in the country. It was a necklace of what appeared to be large but rather roughly polished rubies, to which hung a small effigy of an Egyptian god, also fashioned from a ruby. It must be added that although of unusual nature on such an occasion, this jewel suited her dark beauty well. Lady Ragnall's selection of it, however, from the many she possesses, was the cause of much speculation. When asked by a friend why she had chosen it, she is reported to have said that it was to bring her good fortune. Now why did she wear the barbaric marriage gift of Harut and Marut, in preference to all the other gems at her disposal? I wondered. The thing was so strange as to be almost uncanny. The second piece of information concerning this pair reached me through the medium of an old Times newspaper, which I received over a year later. It was to the effect that a son and heir had been born to Lord Ragnall, and that both mother and child were doing well. So, there's the end to a very curious little story, thought I to myself. Well, during those two years many things befell me. First of all, in company with my old friend Sir Stephen Summers, I made the expedition to Pongoland in search of the wonderful orchid which he desired to add to his collection. I have already written of that journey and our extraordinary adventures, and need therefore allude to it no more here, except to say that during the course of it I was sorely tempted to travel to the territory north of the lake in which the Pongos dwelt. Much did I desire to see whether Messrs. Harut and Marut would in truth appear to conduct me to the land where the wonderful elephant, which was supposed to be animated by an evil spirit, was waiting to be killed by my rifle. However, I resisted the impulse, as indeed our circumstances obliged me to do. In the end we returned safely to Durban, and here I came to the conclusion that never again would I risk my life on such mad expeditions. Owing to circumstances which I have detailed elsewhere, I was now in possession of a considerable sum of cash, and this I determined to lay out in such a fashion as to make me independent of hunting and trading in the wilder regions of Africa. As usual, when money is forthcoming, an opportunity soon presented itself in the shape of a gold mine, which had been discovered on the borders of Zululand, 
one of the first that was ever found in those districts. A Jew trader named Jacob brought it to my notice and offered me a half share if I would put up the capital necessary to work the mine. I made a journey of inspection and convinced myself that it was indeed a wonderful proposition. I need not enter into the particulars, nor, to tell the truth, have I any desire to do so, for the subject is still painful to me, further than to say that this Jew and some friends of his panned out visible gold before my eyes, and then revealed to me the magnificent quartz reef from which, as I demonstrated, it had been washed in the bygone ages of the world. The news of our discovery spread like wildfire, and as, whatever else I might be, every one knew that I was honest. In the end a small company was formed with Alan Quatermain Esquire as the chairman of the bona fide gold mine limited. Oh, that company! Often to this day I dream of it when I have indigestion. Our capital was small, ten thousand pounds, of which the Jew, who was well named Jacob and his friends, took half, for nothing of course, as the purchase price of their rights. I thought the proportion large, and said so, especially after I had ascertained that these rights had cost them exactly three dozen of square-faced gin, a broken-down wagon, four cows past the bearing age, and five pounds in cash. However, when it was pointed out to me that, by their peculiar knowledge and genius, they had located and provided the value of a property of enormous potential worth, moreover that this sum was to be paid to them in scrip, which would only be realizable when success was assured, and not in money, after a night of anxious consideration I gave way. Personally, before I consented to accept the chairmanship, which carried with it a salary of a hundred pounds a year, which I never got, I bought and paid for in cash shares to the value of a thousand pounds sterling. I remember that Jacob and his friends seemed surprised at this act of mine, as they had offered to give me five hundred of their shares for nothing, in consideration of the guarantee of my name. These I refused, saying that I would not ask others to invest in a venture in which I had no actual money stake, whereon they accepted my decision, not without enthusiasm. In the end the balance of four thousand pounds was subscribed, and we got to work. Work is a good name for it, so far as I was concerned, for never in all my days have I gone through so harrowing a time. We began by washing a certain patch of gravel, and obtained results which seemed really astonishing. So remarkable were they that on publication the shares rose to ten shillings premium. Jacob and co. took advantage of this opportunity to sell quite half of their bonus holding to eager applicants, explaining to me that they did so not for personal profit, which they scorned, but to broaden the basis of the undertaking by admitting fresh blood. It was shortly after this boom that the gravel surrounding the rich patch became very gravelly indeed, and it was determined that we should buy a small battery and begin to crush the quartz from which the gold was supposed to flow in a Pactolian stream. We negotiated for that battery through a Cape Town firm of engineers, but why follow the melancholy business and all its details? The shares began to decrease in value. They shrank to their original price of one pound, then to fifteen shillings, then to ten shillings. Jacob, he was managing director, explained to me that it was necessary to support the market, as he was already doing to an enormous extent, 
and that I, as chairman, ought to take a lead in this good work in order to show my faith in the concern. I took a lead to the extent of another five hundred pounds, which was all that I could afford. I admit that it was a shock to such trust in human nature as remained to me, when I discovered subsequently that the thousand shares which I bought for my five hundred pounds had really been the property of Jacob, although they appeared to be sold to me in various other names. The crisis came at last, for before that battery was delivered our available funds were exhausted, and no one would subscribe another halfpenny. Debentures, it is true, had been issued and taken up to the extent of about a thousand pounds out of the five thousand pounds offered, though who bought them remained at the time a mystery to me. Ultimately, a meeting was called to consider the question of liquidating the company, and at this meeting, after three sleepless nights, I occupied the chair. When I entered the room, to my amazement, I found that of the five directors, only one was present besides myself an honest old retired sea captain who had bought and paid for three hundred shares jacob and the two friends who represented his interests had it appeared taken ship that morning for cape town whither they were summoned to attend various relatives who had been seized with illness it was a stormy meeting at first i explained the position to the best of my ability and when I had finished was assailed with a number of questions which I could not answer to the satisfaction of myself or of anybody else. Then a gentleman, the owner of ten shares, who had evidently been drinking, suggested in plain language that I had cheated the shareholders by issuing false reports. I jumped up in a fury, and although he was twice my size, asked him to come and argue the question outside, whereon he promptly went away. This incident excited a laugh, and then the whole truth came out. A man with coloured blood in him stood up and told a story which was subsequently proved to be true. Jacob had employed him to salt the mine by mixing a heavy sprinkling of gold in the gravel we had first washed, which the coloured man swore he did in innocence, and subsequently had defrauded him of his wages. That was all. I sank back in my chair overcome. Then some good fellow in the audience, who had lost money himself in the affair, and whom I scarcely knew, got up and made a noble speech which went far to restore my belief in human nature. He said in effect that it was well known that I, Alan Quatermain, after working like a horse in the interests of the shareholders, had practically ruined myself over this enterprise, and that the real thief was Jacob, who had made tracks for the Cape, taking with him a large cash profit resulting from the sale of shares. Finally, he concluded, by calling for three cheers for our honest friend and fellow sufferer, Mr. Allan Quatermain. Strange to say, the audience gave them very heartily indeed. I thanked them with tears in my eyes, saying that I was glad to leave the room as poor as I had ever been, but with a reputation which my conscience, as well as their kindness, assured me was quite unblemished. Thus the winding-up resolution was passed, and that meeting came to an end. After shaking hands with my deliverer from a most unpleasant situation, I walked homewards with the lightest heart in the world. My money was gone, it was true. Also my overconfidence in others had led me to make a fool of myself by accepting as fact, on what I believed to be the evidence of my eyes, that which I had not sufficient expert knowledge to verify. 
but my honour was saved, and as I have again and again seen in the course of life, money is nothing when compared with honour, a remark which Shakespeare made long ago, though, like many other truths, this is one of which a full appreciation can only be gained by personal experience. Not very far from the place where our meeting had been held, I passed a side street, then in embryo, for it had only one or two houses situated in their gardens, and a rather large and muddy sluit of water running down one side at the edge of the footpath. Save for two people, this street was empty, but that pair attracted my attention. They were a white man, in whom I recognized the stout and half-intoxicated individual who had accused me of cheating the company and then departed, and a withered old hottentot who at that distance, nearly a hundred yards away, much reminded me of a certain Hans. This Hans, I must explain, was originally a servant of my father, who was a missionary in the Cape Colony, and had been my companion in many adventures. Thus in my youth he and I alone escaped when Dingaan murdered Retief and his party of Boers. See the book called Marie, editor, and he had been one of my party in our quest for the wonderful orchid, the record of which I have written down in The Holy Flower. Hans had his weak points, among which must be counted his love of liquor, but he was a gallant and resourceful old fellow, as indeed he had amply proved upon that orchid-seeking expedition. Moreover, he loved me with a love passing the love of women. Now, having acquired some money in a way I need not stop to describe, for is it not written elsewhere, he was settled as a kind of little chief on a farm not very far from Durban, where he lived in great honour because of the fame of his deeds. The white man and Hans, if Hans it was, were engaged in a violent altercation whereof snatches floated to me on the breeze spoken in the Dutch language. "'You dirty little Hottentot!' shouted the white man, waving a stick. "'I'll cut the liver out of you. What do you mean by nosing after me like a jackal?' And he struck at Hans, who jumped aside. "'Son of a white fat sow!' screamed Hans in answer, for the moment I heard his voice I knew that it was Hans. "'How dare you to call the boss a thief? Yes, a thief! O rooter in the mud! O feeder on filth and worms! O hog of the gutter! The boss!' the clipping of whose nail is worth more than you and all your family, he whose honour is as clear as the sunlight, and whose heart is cleaner than the white sand of the sea.' "'Yes, I did,' roared the white man, "'for he got my money in that gold-mine. "'Then, Hog, why did you run away? "'Why did you not wait to tell him so outside that house?' "'I'll teach you about running away, you little yellow dog,' replied the other, catching Hans a cut across the ribs. "'Oh, you want to see me run, do you?' said Hans, skipping back a few yards with a wonderful agility. "'Then look!' Thus speaking, he lowered his head and charged like a buffalo. Fair in the middle he caught that white man, causing him to double up, fly backwards, and land with a most resounding splash in the deepest part of the muddy sluit. Here I may remark that, as his shins are the weakest, a Hottentot's head is by far the hardest— and most dangerous part of him. Indeed, it seems to partake the nature of a cannon-ball, for, without more than a temporary disturbance to its possessor, I have seen a half-loaded wagon go over one of them on a muddy road. Having delivered this thrust home, Hans bolted round a corner and disappeared, while I waited trembling to see what happened to his adversary. 
To my relief, nearly a minute later, he crept out of the sluit, covered with mud and dripping with water, and hobbled off slowly down the street, his head so near his feet that he looked as though he had been folded in two, and his hands pressed upon what I believe is medically known as the diaphragm. Then I also went upon my way, roaring with laughter. Often I have heard Hottentots called the lowest of mankind, but, reflected I, they can at any rate be good friends to those who treat them well, a fact of which I was to have further proof ere long. By the time I reached my house and had filled my pipe and sat myself down on the dilapidated cane chair on the veranda, that natural reaction set in which so often follows rejoicing at the escape from some great danger. It was true that no one believed I had cheated them over that thrice-accursed gold-mine, but how about other matters? I mused upon the Bible narrative of Jacob and Esau, with a new and very poignant sympathy for Esau. I wondered what would become of my Jacob. Jacob, I mean the original, prospered exceedingly as a result of his deal in porridge, and, as thought I, probably would his artful descendant who so appropriately bore his name. As a matter of fact, I do not know what became of him, but bearing his talents in mind, I think it probable that, like Van Koop, under some other patronymic, he has now been rewarded with a title by the British government. At any rate, I had eaten the porridge in the shape of worthless but dearly purchased shares, after labouring hard in the chase of the golden calf, while brother Jacob had got my inheritance, or rather my money. Probably he was now counting it over in sovereigns upon the ship, and sniggering as he thought of the shareholders meeting with me in the chair. Well, he was a thief, and would run his road to whatever end is appointed for thieves, so why should I bother my head more about him? As I had kept my honour, let him take my savings. But I had a son to support, and now what was I to do with scarcely three hundred pounds, a good stock of guns, and this little Durban property left to me in the world? Commerce, in all its shapes, I renounced once and for ever. It was too high or too low for me. So it would seem that there remained to me only my old business of professional hunting. Once again I must seek those adventures which I had forsworn when my evil star shone so brightly over a gold-mine. What was it to be? Elephants, I supposed, since these are the only creatures worth killing from a money point of view. But most of my old horns had been more or less shot out. The competition of younger professionals, of wandering black-veld boars, and even of poaching natives who had obtained guns, was growing severe. If I went at all, I should have to travel further afield. Whilst I meditated thus, turning over the comparative advantages or disadvantages of various possible hunting grounds in my mind, my attention was caught by a kind of cough that seemed to proceed from the farther side of a large gardenia bush. It was not a human cough, but rather resembled that made by a certain small buck at night, probably to signal to its mate which of course it could not be, as there were no buck within several miles. Yet I knew it came from a human throat, for had I not heard it before in many an hour of difficulty and danger? "'Draw near, Hans,' I said in Dutch, and instantly out of a clump of aloes that grew in front of the pomegranate hedge crept the withered shape of the old Hottentot, as a big yellow snake might do. Why he should choose this method of advance instead of that offered by the garden path I did not know, but it was quite in accordance with his secretive nature, 
inherited from a hundred generations of ancestors who spent their lives avoiding the observance of murderous foes. He squatted down in front of me, staring in a vacant way at the fierce ball of the westering sun without blinking an eyelid, just as a vulture does. "'You look to me as though you had been fighting, Hans,' I said. "'The crown of your hat is knocked out. You are splashed with mud, and there is the mark of a stick upon your left side.' "'Yes, boss, you are right as usual, boss. I had a quarrel with a man about sixpence that he owed me and knocked him over with my head, forgetting to take my hat off first. Therefore it is spoiled, for which I am sorry, as it was quite a new hat, not two years old. The boss gave it me. He bought it in a store in Utrecht when we were coming back from Pongoland. "'Why do you lie to me?' I asked. "'You have been fighting a white man, and for more than sixpence. You knocked him into a sluit, and the mud splashed up over you.' "'Yes, boss, that is so. Your spirit speaks truly to you of the matter. Yet it wanders a little from the path, since I fought the white man for less than sixpence. I fought him for love, which is nothing at all. Then you are an even bigger fool than I took you for, Hans. What do you want now?' "'I want to borrow a pound, boss. The white man will take me before the magistrate, and I shall be fined a pound, or fourteen days in the trunk, i.e. jail.' It is true that the white man struck me first, but the magistrate will not believe the word of a poor old Hottentot against his, and I have no witness. He will say, Hans, you were drunk again. Hans, you are a liar, and deserve to be flogged, which you will be next time. Pay a pound and ten shillings more, which is the price of good white justice, or go to the trunk for fourteen days and make baskets there for the great queen to use. "'Boss, I have the price of the justice which is ten shillings, but I want to borrow the pound for the fine.' "'Hans, I think that just now you are better able to lend me a pound than I am to lend one to you. My bag is empty, Hans.' "'Is it so, boss? Well, it does not matter. If necessary, I can make baskets for the great white queen to put her food in for fourteen days, or mats on which she will wipe her feet.' The trunk is not such a bad place, boss. It gives me time to think of the white man's justice, and to thank the great one in the sky, because the little sins one did not do have been found out and punished, while the big sins one did do, such as—well, never mind, boss—have not been found out at all. Your reverend father, the predicant, always taught me to have a thankful heart, boss— and when I remember that I have only been in the trunk for three months altogether, who, if all were known, ought to have been there for years, I remember his words, boss. Why should you go to the trunk at all, Hans, when you are rich and can pay a fine, even if it were a hundred pounds? A month or two ago it is true I was rich, boss, but now I am poor. I have nothing left except ten shillings. Hans. I said severely, you have been gambling again, you have been drinking again, you have sold your property and your cattle to pay your gambling debts and to buy square-faced gin. Yes, boss, and for no good it seems, though it is not true that I have been drinking, I sold the land and the cattle for six hundred fifty pounds, boss, and with the money I bought other things. What did you buy? I said. 
He fumbled first in one pocket of his coat, and then in the other, and ultimately produced a crumpled and dirty-looking piece of paper that resembled a banknote. I took it and examined this document, and the next minute nearly fainted. It certified that Hans was the proprietor of I know not how many debentures or shares, I forget which they were, in the bona fide gold mine limited, that same company of which I was the unlucky chairman, in consideration for which he had paid a sum of over six hundred fifty pounds. Hans, I said feebly, from whom did you buy this? From the boss with the hooked nose, boss. He who was named Jacob, after the great man in the Bible of whom your father the predicant used to tell us, the one who was so slim and dressed himself up in a goatskin, and gave his brother mealy porridge when he was hungry, after he had come in from shooting buck, boss, and got his farm and cattle, boss, and then went to heaven up a ladder, boss. And who told you to buy them, Hans? Sammy, boss, he who was your cook when we went to Pongoland. He who hid in the mealy pit when the slavers burned bees at town, and came out half-cooked like a fowl from the oven. The boss Jacob stopped at Sammy's hotel, boss, and told him that unless he bought bits of paper like this, of which he had plenty, you would be brought before the magistrate and sent to the trunk, boss. So Sammy bought some, boss, but not many, for he had only a little money and the boss Jacob paid him for all he ate and drank with other bits of paper. Then Sammy came to me and showed me what it was my duty to do, reminding me that your reverend father the predicant had left you in my charge till one of us dies, whether you were well or ill, and whether you got better or got worse, just like a white wife, boss. So I sold the farm and the cattle to a friend of the boss Jacob's at a very low price, boss, and that is all the story. I heard, and, to tell the honest truth, I almost wept, since the thought of the sacrifice which this poor old Hottentot had made for my sake on the instigation of a rogue utterly overwhelmed me. Hans, I asked, recovering myself, Tell me what was that new name which the Zulu captain Mavovo gave you before he died? I mean after you had fired Beza town and caught Hassan and his slavers in their own trap. Hans, who had suddenly found something that interested him extremely out at sea, perhaps because he did not wish to witness my grief, turned round slowly and answered, Mavovo named me Light in Darkness, and by that name the Kaffirs know me now, Bas though some of them call me Lord of the Fire. Then Mavovo named you well, for indeed, Hans, you shine like a light in the darkness of my heart. I, whom you think wise, am but a fool, Hans, who has been tricked by a vernuker, a common cheat, and he has tricked you and Sammy as well. But as he has shown me that man can be very vile, you have shown me that he can be very noble and setting the one against the other, my spirit that was in the dust rises up once more like a withered flower after rain, light in darkness, although if I had ten thousand pounds I could never pay you back, since what you have given me is more than all the gold in the world, and all the land, and all the cattle, yet with honour and with love I will try to pay you. And I held out my hand to him. 
He took it and pressed it against his wrinkled old forehead, then answered, "'Talk no more of that, Baas, for it makes me sad, who am so happy. How often have you forgiven me when I have done wrong? How often have you not flogged me when I should have been flogged for being drunk, and other things? Yes, even when once I stole some of your powder and sold it to buy square-faced gin.' though it is true i knew it was bad powder not fit for you to use did i thank you then overmuch why therefore should you thank me who have done but a little thing not really to help you but because as you know i love gambling and was told that this bit of paper would soon be worth much more than i gave for it if it had proved so should i have given you that money no I should have kept it myself and bought a bigger farm and more cattle. Han, I said sternly, if you lie so hard you will certainly go to hell, as the predicant my father often told you. Not if I lie for you, Baas, or if I do it doesn't matter, except that then we should be separated by the big kloof written of in the book, especially as there I should meet the Baas Jacob, as I very much want to do for a reason of my own not wishing to pursue this somewhat unchristian line of thought i inquired of him why he felt happy oh baas he answered with a twinkle in his little black eyes can't you guess why now you have very little money left and i have none at all therefore it is plain that we must go somewhere to earn money and i am glad of that baas for i am tired of sitting on that farm out there and growing mealies and milking cows especially as I am too old to marry, Bas, and you are tired of looking for gold when there isn't any and singing sad songs in that house of meeting yonder like you did this afternoon? Oh, the great father in the skies knew what he was about when he sent the Bas Jacob our way. He beat us for our own good, Bas. He does always, if we could only understand.' i reflected to myself that i had not often heard the doctrine of the church better or more concisely put but i only said that is true hans and i thank you for the lesson the second you have taught me to-day but where are we to go hans remember it must be elephants he suggested some places indeed he seemed to have come provided with a list of them and i sat silent making no comment at length he finished and squatted there before me chewing a bit of tobacco i had given him and looking up at me interrogatively with his head on one side for all the world like a dilapidated and inquisitive bird hans i said do you remember a story i told you when you came to see me a year or more ago about a tribe called the kenda in whose country there is said to be a great cemetery of elephants which travel there to die from all the land about a country that lies somewhere to the north-east of the lake island on which the pongo used to dwell yes baas and you said i think that you had never heard of such a people no baas i never said anything at all i have heard a good deal about them then why did you not tell me before you little idiot i asked indignantly what was the good baas you were hunting gold then not ivory why should i make you unhappy and waste my own breath by talking about beautiful things which were far beyond the reach of either of us far as that sky don't ask fools questions but tell me what you know hans tell me at once this boss when we were up at beza town after we came back from killing the gorilla god 
and the baas stephen your friend lay sick there was nothing else to do i talked with everyone i could find worth talking to and they were not many baas but there was one very old woman who was not of the mazitu race and whose husband and children were all dead but whom the people in the town looked up to and feared because she was wise and made medicines out of herbs and told fortunes i used to go to see her she was quite blind baas and fond of talking with me which shows how wise she was i told her all about the pongo gorilla god of which already she knew something when i had done she said that he was as nothing compared with a certain god that she had seen in her youth seven tens of years ago when she became marriageable i asked her for that story and she spoke it thus far away to the north and east live a people called the kenda who are ruled over by a sultan they are a very great people and inhabit a most fertile country but all round their country the land is desolate and manless peopled only by game for the reason that they will suffer none to dwell there that is why nobody knows anything of them he that comes across the wilderness into that land is killed and never returns to tell of it she told me also that she was born of this people but fled because their sultan wished to place her in his house of women which she did not desire for a long while she wandered southwards living on roots and berries till she came to desert land and at last worn out lay down to die then she was found by some of the mazitu who were on an expedition seeking ostrich feathers for war plumes they gave her food and seeing that she was fair brought her back to their country where one of them married her but of her own land she uttered only lying words to them because she feared that if she told the truth the gods who guard its secrets would be avenged upon her though now when she was near to death she dreaded them no more since even the kenda gods cannot swim through the waters of death that is all she said about her journey because she had forgotten the rest bother her journey hans what did she say about her god and the kenda people this boss that the kenda have not one god but two and not one ruler but two they have a good god who is a child fetish here i started that speaks through the mouth of an oracle who is always a woman if that woman dies the god does not speak until they find another woman bearing certain marks which show that she holds the spirit of the god before the woman dies she always tells the priests in what land they are to look for her who is to come after her but sometimes they cannot find her and then trouble falls because the child has lost its tongue and the people become the prey of the other god that never dies and what is that god hans that god baas is an elephant here i started again a very bad elephant to which human sacrifice is offered i think baas that it is the devil wearing the shape of an elephant at least that is what she said now the sultan is a worshipper of the god that dwells in the elephant jana here i positively whistled and so are most of the people indeed all those among them who are black for once far away in the beginning of kenda were two peoples but the lighter coloured people who worshipped the child came down from the north and conquered the black people bringing the child with them or so i understood her baas thousands and thousands of years ago when the world was young 
since then they have flowed on side by side like two streams in the same channel never mixing for each keeps its own colour only she said that stream which comes from the north grows weaker and that from the south more strong then why does not the strong swallow up the weak because the weak are still the pure and the wise boss or so the old vrouw declared because they worship the good while the others worship the devil and as your father the predicant used to say good is the cock which always wins the fight at last boss yes when he seems to be dead he gets up again and kicks the devil in the stomach and stands on him and crows boss also these northern folk are mighty magicians through their child fetish they give rain and fat seasons and keep away sickness whereas jana gives only evil gifts that have to do with cruelty and war and so forth lastly the priests who rule the child have the secrets of wealth and ancient knowledge whereas the sultan and his followers have only the might of the spear this was the song which the old woman sang to me Bas. why did you not tell me of these matters when we were at Biza town and i could have talked with her myself hans for two reasons Bas. the first was that i feared if i told you you would wish to go on to find these people whereas i was tired of travelling and wanted to come to natal to rest the second was that on the night when the old woman finished telling me her story she was taken sick and died and therefore it would have been no use to bring you to see her so i saved it up in my head until it was wanted moreover baas all the mazitu declared that old woman to be the greatest of liars she was not altogether a liar hans hear what i have learned and i told him of the magic of harut and marut and of the picture that i seemed to see of the elephant jana and of the prayer that harut and marut had made to me to all of which he listened quite stolidly it is not easy to astonish a hottentot's brain which often draws no accurate dividing line between the possible and what the modern world holds to be impossible yes baas he said when i had finished then it seems that the old woman was not such a liar after all thus when shall we start after that horde of dead ivory and which way will you go by kilwa or through zululand it should be settled soon because of the seasons after this we talked together for a long while for with pockets as empty as mine were then the problem seemed difficult if not insoluble End of chapter six